sex and sexuality. And the very first place that, that we're influenced is our family of origin. We saw something modeled in our fathers and our mothers, maybe in healthy ways, maybe in less than healthy ways, um, but all of us have some kind of, of modeling that we've seen. And almost all of us have some kind of gaps in our image of masculinity or our image of femininity. So we have our family of origin stuff. We also have when we, that, that shapes, as I've already said, our ideas about sex and sexuality, we have our own personal experiences. Um, and don't underestimate your, especially your early experiences of sexuality. Very often those kind of take a root and shape our thinking and our souls to the point that if there's some place of pain or brokenness or woundedness in some early experiences of your sexuality, you may need to get together with someone who can visit those painful places with Jesus to learn what you're supposed to learn so that your past doesn't continue to affect and negatively impact your future. All right, so we have our family of origin stuff. We have our personal stories. That's true for every one of us. But then we have in our culture, we really have a cultural sexual discipleship going on in our world. So take a look at the screen and let's see some of the other things that are, um, that are affecting our, um, our sexuality. Every year you got to deal with this, right? And there is a huge commercial industry around making sure that you deal with Valentine's Day. All of these kinds of things. And I just tried to, I, I did a lot of thinking about sex this week, folks. <laughs> um, and so next screen here. All right. Um, we, so let's stay there for a second. That is a powerful discipler of sexuality in our culture. Right? We're going to have to figure out what's gonna, what we're going to allow to disciple us. Okay, next one. All right, found those for you. You are welcome. <laughs> Next. <laughs> we can always go to Google and try to find some authority about sexuality. Or we can go to the next one, which is, they have a whole portal on sexuality. There's so much on sexuality in Wikipedia that you have an entry door, and then from there it just explodes and goes everywhere. And then there's this. The um, greatest use of the Internet in, in this generation, not this generation, at this point in time, is to search for pornography. When I started thinking about those kinds of influences on our sex and sexuality, I realized that most of us probably have to detox from the brokenness and the isolation and the pain that comes from cultural sexual discipleship. And the irony is that the whole sexual freedom movement where we can have skin-to-skin sexual contact that has nothing about soul-to-soul, this whole thing that we can have sex with anybody, this whole thing in our media that, that you can't have a male and female romantically involved that don't go to bed the first date on, on the movies and on the TV. All of this has increased the isolation and alienation that God created our sexuality to to bring wholeness and communion and and to abolish that alienation and isolation. So the first point of the talk this morning, and this one I want to get through quickly because I want to get on to the main part. First point of our talk this morning is that followers of Jesus Christ can choose what shapes our ideas about sex and sexuality. 
We can choose what we will allow to shape our ideas of sex and sexuality. We can't change the past, but we can go back to the past with Jesus and be healed and, and change the way the past affects us. We can't change our family of origin, but we can change the way that affects us. But the main point is that we actually have the ability to choose what will shape our thinking about sex and sexuality. And so I want to challenge us to pursue a Christian sexual discipleship. A Christian sexual discipleship looks, at the, looks into the Word of God to find what wisdom does God have around this area that is so integral, that goes so deeply into our souls. And very interesting, the Bible doesn't just talk about sex here or there or here. Or there. It's not just sprinkled around. Throughout the scriptures, there are, there are discussions of, of biblical manhood, of masculinity, of biblical womanhood, of femininity, of, of, I mean, the sermon last week on, it just, there's weird stuff in the Bible about sex, all right? Um, there's stuff in the Bible about sex that should cause us to blush, all right? The scriptures speak about sex and sexuality in a robust way, and a Christian sexual discipleship pursues the word of God to see what wisdom we can learn about our sexuality. And what we do when we start to do that, immediately we have to come to the point where we realize that our sexuality is a gift of God and it is good, it is very good. We will also, in a Christian um, sexual discipleship, we will realize, as I already mentioned, that sexuality is powerful. You know, when, when God put boundaries around sexual expression, when God said that, that um, sex is reserved for marriage, it's not before marriage. When God says that, that um, not to, to pursue prostitutes, when God says not to get engaged in, in adultery, when God says that sexual expression is between a male and a female, God's not just trying to say you don't get to have the candy. God is putting boundaries around sexual expression that allow us to be blessed and not be wounded. Um, in the Word of God, we'll find with a Christian sexual discipleship that we have actually a responsibility as followers of Jesus to protect our sexuality and to protect the sexuality of others around us. And, um, and we find when we look at the scriptures about sexuality that while sex is powerful, there is nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus to forgive us when we have sinned and when we have failed. Right? All of that's part of this Christian sexual discipleship that I think we ought to be working out with fear and trembling for the rest of our lives. So let me talk to women just for a moment. There's a, a ministry that I really respect um, called Authentic Intimacy. And this is a quote from their website, and they said it better than I could. Here's what, what they say. Practically every woman, not everyone, but practically every woman, young and old, single and married, carries pain, shame, and confusion related to sexuality. We want women to understand and love their sexual identity in Christ by applying God's truth to all the questions, pains, and joys of sexuality. We believe that God has intentionally created us as sexual beings, that every sexual choice is a spiritual choice, that sexuality is a powerful metaphor, and that Satan intentionally works to destroy the holy expression of sexuality. All right? Practically every woman has an ache somewhere around sexuality. So let me talk to the men. Guys, I'm pretty sure nearly every single one of us has sinned with lust the way that Jesus defines it in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says that lust is actually adultery. 
It is a breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. It is sin. Most of us have dipped into, and at times many of us have been overly attracted to pornography. We are the ones normally, not always, we're normally the ones who are pushing sexual boundaries in romantic relationships. We too need to find biblical wisdom to understand the questions and the pains um, and what God intends for biblical manhood. So point number one of the message today, as Christians, let's choose what we will allow to influence our ideas of sex and sexuality. Let's pursue a Christian spiritual or Christian sexual discipleship. But the main thing I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about the second point here is that followers of Jesus Christ, not only can we choose what will shape our sex and sexuality, but followers of Jesus Christ, we can confess, be cleansed, and be restored from sexual sin. What do we do when we fall and when we fail? What do we do when the culture has, has, has captured us and tripped us up? What do we do when we just have confusion trying to figure out and work out our sexuality as disciples of Jesus? Well, Psalm 51 is an incredible psalm. It's, one of, it's called a penitential psalm. It's an incredible psalm for us to go to when we are broken by. It works for any sin, but it is particularly seems to be powerful when we've been broken by our own sexual sin. And I actually, you know, full disclosure, I've been back, I visit Psalm 51 regularly in my life. Over the decades, I have spent a lot of time praying through Psalm 51 trying to wrestle with what do I do with my sexual sins. So um, before we get into the psalm itself, um, you need to know a little bit about the background. And the background, well, first let me tell you, in your, in your Bibles or on your phone, um, it'll say psalm, it'll have it the psalm 51, and then there's a sentence or a few words, usually in italics or maybe all caps, before you get to verse 1 of the psalm. Those are called ascriptions. All right? The ascriptions to the Psalms are, they tell us a little bit about that Psalm. And here's the interesting thing the ascriptions to the Psalms are very, very old, at least 800 years before Christ for the ascriptions, but they're not as old as the Psalms themselves. So we, we honor and pay attention to them, but we aren't bound to them. Well, the ascription for Psalm 51 um, in the ESV is a Psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, we don't know 100% that that's exactly what this is written for, but you know what? It works. And there's enough crossover of vocabulary that, um, that it makes sense that this is David's psalm that he wrote after he had fallen into significant sexual sin. So here's the story of David and Bathsheba, in case you don't know it. David, as the king of Israel, had been involved in wars uh, over a number of years. He had pushed out and expanded the boundaries of his kingdom larger than they had ever been before. And um, one season, while his troops were out fighting, David was not with his armies. We don't know why, because he normally would have been. And he is on the roof of his palace. And on the roof of his palace, he's looking around, surveying, and he sees this, 
this, you know, hot, sexy woman taking a bath. And in that moment, David had a whole series of options that he could have chosen. But what he chose to do is is feed his lust. He had her sent for, brought her in, and he had sex with her. Her name was Bathsheba. And she became pregnant. We don't know whether he had sex with her once or whether he had sex with her multiple times. That story doesn't tell us this. But in the process, she becomes pregnant. All right, David then wants to try to cover his tracks to hide his sin. So what he does is he calls Uriah, her husband, back from the the front and says, I want you to have a home leave, some some R&R recuperation. You know, go spend some time with your beautiful wife. With the plan that Uriah would have sex with Bathsheba so that when Bathsheba was found to be pregnant, Uriah would think that it was his kid. But it didn't work. Uriah came back and he says, I can't be, you know enjoying, you know, sex with my wife when my, my fellow soldiers are on the front line. I'll come back and check in, but, but he didn't have sex with Bathsheba, which means David's ruse wasn't going to work. So what he decides to do to cover up his sin is he says to his commanding general, send Uriah out in the front lines and then have everybody else retreat to make sure that Uriah is killed, which is exactly what happens. Uriah is killed in battle. David then brings Bathsheba to become one of his wives. And she continues her pregnancy. So much to talk about (laughs) that we could. Unaccountable time. It's in those, those unaccountable times that we're usually tempted to lust and sexual sin, right? When nobody knows, just maybe us and our significant other, or when we're all by ourselves, nobody knows. There are all kinds of choices that get made at that moment. Also, Fascinating the lengths to which David would go to cover up his sin. And it just kept digging him deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin. Um, and there's that whole thing of, of thinking that our sexual sins are done in secret, but realizing that nothing is ever secret to God. And so God, to confront the situation, sends Nathan the prophet to go talk with David. And Nathan tells the king, a story about a poor man who had one little tiny little lamb that he loved and and, and nurtured and he fed and that slept with him. He raised it with his children. And there was a rich man who had a whole flock of lamb and a visitor came to the rich man and the rich man didn't want to use one of his own flocks so he stole the little tiny ewe lamb from the poor man, the only one that he had and he sacrificed it to feed his, um, his visitor, his guest. And Nathan tells David the story, and David says, that's horrible. That man deserves to die. He's got to repay four times what he stole from the poor man. And then Nathan looks at the king in the eye, and he says, you're the man. And then explains how God is going to deal with David's sin. David's broken by that. And and he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, there are a whole bunch of consequences that are going to happen, but Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the children who is born to you shall die. And that's what actually happened. Bathsheba gave birth to the son, and the son died. All right, lots we could explore in that. But the whole purpose to explore that background is so we can get to Psalm 51. The psalm that we feel like David wrote 
when he had to deal with his sexual sin with Bathsheba. And so um, Psalm 51, guys, this is an incredible um, model of confession for us. When you have fallen and your soul is smeared with slime of sin, Psalm 51 is your friend. It's like Psalm 23. You go there so that you can walk through a process so that you can be restored by God. So I actually pray that Psalm 51 will be within the handful of 10 or 12 psalms that every one of you becomes familiar with over the course of your Christian life. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, we see a cry for mercy. Listen to the verses. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We see two characters in the first two verses. The first is David, who is broken by his sin. And it's weighing on his heart, and he, is cry- he knows that he deserves nothing from God at this point. I mean, he committed adultery and then made sure a guy was murdered and tried to, he has nothing to stand on. And he is weighed down and broken because of his sin. I'm pretty sure we need a lot more brokenness because of our sins in the church today. You know, it's sad, but over the last five to seven years, there's hardly a marriage that I have performed as a pastor where the couple wasn't sexually active before they got married. And the thing that kind of wrecks me, I had a couple like four years ago, and both grew up in Christian families. They were living together. They had one kid, and now they have three. Um, but they had one kid, and they decided, well, maybe it's time for us to get married. And I remember doing the pre-marriage counseling with them early on and just saying, dear God, let them show just a little remorse, just a little just brokenness because of their sexual sin. And I was just struck by it just didn't matter. We need a lot more brokenness over our sins in general and in particularly over our sexual sins in the church. The Apostle Paul says that, you know, every sin's bad enough, but sexual sin strikes at the image of God within us. It strikes at our masculinity and femininity, and it besmirches our souls in a unique way. Paul says every other sin is outside our bodies, but, but this sin comes into our bodies. And pollutes the temple where the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. Yet, we can fall into sin sexually and just kind of, oh, well, I guess that's just the way that it is. We need to be broken. To the point where we cry out to mercy to God. To to just fix this thing that we have so screwed up. So the first person character we meet is a person broken, crying out for mercy. The second character we meet in these first two verses is a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy who can wash us thoroughly from our sins. That is amazing. Jesus came and lived among us to show us how to live, to teach us how to live, but then to die on the cross, and here's, it's, it's so baffling, but astounding, that Jesus was 
paying for our sexual sins. Each of our sins hanging on that cross. Not because he had to, not because it was his job, but because he has an unending love and mercy. He cares for us so much that he will absorb our sin into himself so that the debt of our sin can be paid. So that the slime of our sin on our souls can be erased. So we see first the character of a person broken by sin. Secondly, we see the character of a God willing to forgive and love. In verses 3 through 5, first we see a cry for mercy. Verses 1 to 2. Verses 3 through 5, we see a clear confession. This is very, very important. We see a clear confession. David writes and he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Lots of bunny trails we could run on this verse, but what I want us to see is that David isn't justifying his sin. David's not excusing his sin. David's not making light of his sin. David's not redefining sin so that he can be comfortable with his sin. David is cleanly confessing, I have failed. My soul is smeared with slime. I have sinned. So I was talking with a young adult um, about two years ago. And I asked him how he was doing in managing the sexual purity in his relationship because I knew that he was dating uh, a girl. And I knew some other things too. But, um, but I asked him, I said, so how are you guarding your sexual purity? And he says to me, he said, well, there's one thing we have decided we will not do. And I kind of shook my head and said, what? He says, there's one thing we will not do. So for him, um, everything was acceptable except for sexual intercourse. Oral sex was okay. Nudity was okay. Sleeping together was okay. Taking showers together was okay. That's not the sign of a person who is owning up to their sin. That's a sign of a person who is redefining sin so that they can be comfortable and continue on the pathway of sin. And so, so I checked in with him a few months later because I was, I was really worried. And he said, I just couldn't help myself anymore. And so he was regularly having sex with his girlfriend. And that's the pattern. If we will not acknowledge our sin for what it is, it will spiral down to where we'll make this comment very often, I just couldn't help myself, which is actually a lie. Sin, like it led David to lie, sin leads us to lie. Because you know what? We can say no. We can embark on a life of Christian sexual discipleship where we say there are lines that we will not cross. And we don't make those lines when we're right about tipping into sin. We back those lines up as far as we can. If we don't get to the point where we confess our sins, we cannot be forgiven because here's the deal. Full cleansing and restorations on the other side of clean confession. So if there are sins in your life that need clean confession, will you take care of those? 
They may go back just to last night or they may go back five years. But would you own your sin? No excuses, no blaming, no saying you couldn't help yourself, but own your sin for what it is so that you can get to the next point that God has for us. Because here's the rule of thumb. The more we spare ourselves, the less God spares us. The more we spare ourselves, the less God spares us. And the less we spare ourselves, the more God spares us. If we will boldly and cleanly confess our sins, God will spare us. Not because we feel sorry, but because we have owned and said, God, this is where I am before you. So Proverbs 28, 13, I love it. Um, Whoever conceals their transgressions will not prosper. That's a spiritual rule. Whoever conceals their transgressions will not prosper, but those who confess and forsake them will obtain mercy. So we come to the next verses in Psalm 51, verses 6 through 9, and here we have a plea for cleansing. Behold, David writes, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. So up in verse 2, he said, blot out my sins. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. And then these verses, he says, purge me with hyssop. Wash me. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my sin. And by his repetition, you realize that he is asking for full cleansing, for forgiveness, so that he can move forward away from his sin. Purge me with hyssop. A um, number of places where hyssop is used in the Old Testament, it's used to Passover. But the, the preeminent place seems to be Leviticus 14, where there was a leper whose skin was leprous. He was unclean in every way. And with hyssop and water or blood sprinkled on him, he became clean and whole and complete. Wash me thoroughly is a, clearly a word from the laundry, a garment that has been soiled and is dirty and is gross is washed so that it becomes gleaming white is what it talks about in Revelation. And, and that whole word purge, that, is, that word means de-sin me. Suck the sin out of the core of my being in every way. And um, reminds us of Isaiah 118 where God says, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So, another scripture that I've used many times with you, and I'll use a lot more times, and that you ought to memorize, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that would be good enough, right? But he promises that he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's the glory of being broken by our sin, crying out for mercy and clean confession, is that we get to be spotlessly clean because of the blood of Christ. We don't have to beat ourselves up. 
We don't have to deprive ourselves. We don't have to punish ourselves. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us and he will purify us, which means that in a few moments, I'm actually going to give you space to confess your sins. On the other side of those few moments, if you confess to the extent that you confess your sins, you will be white as snow. The burden that is upon you will lift and you will be free. You'll still have to break patterns and habits of sin in your life. But every time we confess, we start over and we are free. I don't know what your sins are. Um, Maybe you struggle with lust. Maybe you struggle with pornography. Maybe in your marriage you've been unfaithful emotionally or physically. Um, Or maybe your sins are in completely other areas of your life. The good news is that on the other side of confession is complete forgiveness and cleansing and purity in every way. So Isaiah 43, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the blessing. We can cover up our sins and keep them, or we can own up to our sins, and then God will not remember them anymore. Verses 10 through 12. We see, very quickly, I'm going to touch on this, a longing for restoration. Another one of the famous um, verses in Scripture. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Because we know, right? Sin weighs us down and it sucks the joy of our salvation out of us. But confession and cleansing and forgiveness, the next thing we want is we want full restoration. We want to have our souls and our spirits renewed so that joy returns to us. Um, I've said, shared this in some other settings. The most miserable people in the world are not, are not unbelievers who are sinning. Because there's no reason for them to be miserable. The most miserable people in the world are believers, followers of Jesus who are sinning and know it. Because the Holy Spirit is there to make us miserable enough that we will be broken by our sins so that we will confess, so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be restored. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That is is part of my prayer almost every time I sin. Not just erase the sin, but now that the sin's gone, Would you create in me a heart that doesn't want to sin again? Renew a right spirit in me so that I am progressively growing more and more holy and there's less and less sin in my life. So finally, verses 13 through 17 in Psalm 51, we see out of all of this, everywhere from from a cry for mercy to to wanting to, to to confess sin so that he can be forgiven and cleansed, so that he can be restored, we see a vow that comes out of that of witness and worship. If you feel like you have a gap in your life in witness and worship, it may be because you have too much sin in your life and you're not walking through the process of Psalm 51. This is what David writes. He says, then, when he has this right spirit renewed within him, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Reference almost surely to Uriah. 
Deliver me, O God, of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Two blessings come out of sin that is confessed and cleaned and forgiven and restored. The first blessing is that we have credibility to talk to other sinners about what we did with our sin and how Jesus has forgiven us. Remember the woman at the well? She had a whole string of sexual sins going for, for years in her life. She meets Jesus, and after she meets Jesus, she goes back into the village and says, come and meet a man who told me everything I did. And she brought her entire village. Only a redeemed sinner can have that kind of credibility. Which means it would be really glorious around corners. It'd be glorious in the church at large, but it'd be glorious if we could start here. If we would stop hiding our sins and our forgiveness, if we would stop pretending that everything's okay in our lives because it's not, let's not waste our sin. I mean, it's bad enough that we sin, but let's redeem that and let's have credibility to talk to others about the forgiveness of God that comes when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and own our sins. Second um, result that comes out of this process in Psalm 51 is that we have renewed worship. um, David says, um, says, open my mouth, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praises. He says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Remember the prostitute? Jesus was at Simon's house for dinner. And a prostitute comes in and she washes his feet with her tears and he wipes his feet with her hair. Awkward, right? (laughs) And Simon in his head is thinking, we're told, if this man was really, if Jesus was really a prophet, he'd know that this is a sinner. This is a prostitute. And here's what Jesus says in Luke 7, 47. He says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. One of the reasons why our worship flags and and is little more than, than just saying the words or empty feelings is because we love too little, because we've confessed too little and been forgiven too little. I would love for us to be a church, a, I would love the church in your generation to be so exuberantly joyful in praise that everybody would say they must have sinned a lot and been forgiven much to love Jesus that much. May our lives be a testimony to the full and free forgiveness of Jesus. Lots more in the psalm, okay? I want you to be able to go to psalm for the decades into the future in your life where you will be able to walk with David through the steps to cry out to God for mercy because we know sins have wounded our souls, where we make clean confessions, where we plea for, for cleansing from the slime of sin on our souls, where we long for restoration and a right spirit, and where we break out in witness and in worship. And so yesterday I was taking a walk and I said, Lord, how do you want me to end the sermon? 
And uh, God talks to me in strange ways. He says, are you serious? I said, yeah. How do you want me to end the sermon? Said, Seriously, you don't know? I said, and, and I sensed him say, I want you to give my children a chance to walk through the blessedness of Psalm 51 that they can be forgiven and released and clean and pure before me. So we're going to take like three minutes. And we'll leave the outline up there for you if you want to refer to that. Um, if you want to open up your... I'd like you to have some time. Something has been stirred almost surely within you. Lift that up to Jesus. Cry out to him for mercy. Make a clean confession. Ask him to purify your soul, to restore you, and then we'll come back. I'll come back and pray in just a moment, and then we will um, finish our time in worship. So I'll start with a short prayer. Father, thank you that you love us this much. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you colluded together in the Trinity to absorb our sins that we might be clean and free and exuberant. So now as we bring our sins to you, hear our prayers. I pray in Jesus' name.